Hello and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today my guest is Tal Paperin. Tal is the founder and CEO of KSW Solutions. In this episode, we are going to be speaking to founders who kind of drifted and fell into sales. You might be accidental salespeople, or you might be engineers, technicians, developers who look at sales and you think, oh my God, why do I have to put up with these vermin? Well, the reality is, if you don't understand sales, you're going to pay a very heavy price because your investors will take advantage of that, your customers will take advantage of that, and so will your salespeople. Today, we're going to be discussing, do you really understand who your ideal customers are actually buying from today and why? What what alternatives might they be looking at? What major problems or challenges are keeping them awake at night? And what? how do your products or services help them solve those problems better than anyone else? Or well enough to justify pricing your product at the level that you're aiming at in your target market? Because pricing can kill your business. How can you improve your messaging so that you actually resonate with your ideal customers instead of attracting a whole lot of dross to your pipeline that then has to be followed up by your salespeople and then telling them it's their fault? What ludicrous assumptions and lies are you telling yourself about your customers that may be incorrect? And are you actually optimizing your sales process for what actually drives your customers' buying decisions? And this big one, are you in love with your ugly baby? You know the joke about the woman who goes onto the bus and she's holding a monkey and uh, she's shuffling around for change and says, well, madam, give someone else the monkey while you ruffle around for your change. And it's my baby and it's that ugly. Well, that's probably your product. Make damn sure that you're not limiting your capability because of your limiting beliefs and you're not wasting unlocked potential, untapped demand because of your perspectives. So today, Tal, give us in 90 seconds a little bit of background and give us the full Soviet uh, history. So a quick background. I was born in the Soviet Union in 81, moved to Israel in the 90s and started my own business as a little kid selling toys. And that was the beginning of what became my sales career. Went to the Israeli military, was in the Air Force, then went to the university, got myself two degrees in international economy and Eastern Asia studies and Chinese language, and started my sales career 23 years ago. Ever since, I've been selling mostly software, hardware, IoT, with small steps into other industries. Slowly raced through the ranks from an SDR to AEBD, and then eventually became a VP Global Sales. And at some point, as I was traveling the world and meeting people, I realized that at any expo, you see any trade show, you see dozens, hundreds, and thousands of companies with an amazing product, meaning that coming up to the market with a great product is relatively easy. Everybody can develop something, build something, raise money, open a factory. Manufacture, that's easy. But then you see those companies shutting down, going bankrupt. They all going bankrupt because pretty much no one knows how to sell. Nine out of 10 will shut down because they have no idea where to sell, how to sell, which country, which industry, who will need their product. And often, if they think that they do, they're often mistaken and then they waste their 
time and money going after the wrong people. So I opened up a consulting company that specializes in exactly that, stepping into companies, teaching them, training them, and showing them where and how to sell. And if they can't, won't, or don't want to, then we'll do the sales for them. Usually B2B or B2G, we sell to companies and governments all across the world. And that's what I do. Wonderful. Okay. So you've got a huge range of experience throughout the sales cycle. You've led teams and you've looked in from outside. So what are the key blind spots that technical founders have with respect to selling? The range is huge and we won't be able to cover it in one podcast, but let's break it down into a few categories. Let's start from the beginning. A software engineer or a manufacturing guy have no idea how to sell. They don't know what sales are. You and me both and uh, whomever's listening to our podcast, I'm assuming, have been doing sales for decades, if not more. They know at least the basics. A software engineer or a founder of a biotech company has no idea what sales are. He assumes that after raising money or getting money or obtaining funds and manufacturing, he will have to somehow bring in revenue. But he has no idea where to start. That's the problem. Where do I start? Do I hire salespeople? Do I hire VP sales? What do I interview them for? In which country am I going to start selling in my own country of origin where I manufacture? Or should I go after the big markets like Germany or the United States? No idea where to start. That's problem number one. Problem number two would be a false assumption. You manufacture a product and you say, well, obviously that, let's say, CTOs of American universities would be my ideal customer. Why? No idea. Uh, well, we assume that, you know, that, that, that's who the product is tailored for. But that assumption is wrong. If you're coming from the outside, you immediately see it. It's not going to be CTOs in America. It's going to be CFOs in Germany, for example. Assu- wrong assumptions would be number two. Wrong way to market would be number three. The easiest thing you can do is either hire junior salespeople, they're cheap, or outsource your sales operations to the Philippines or Mexico for five bucks an hour and say, okay, start calling every CFO in America. Start emailing everybody. That's not the road to market. Your customers buying somehow else. They're buying it somewhere else. Misunderstanding the competition. Every single company I ever talked to, and it doesn't matter what they do, missiles, which I dealt with, shotguns, tomatoes, dental implants, or software, they all start by saying, we are unique. There's no one else on the planet that does anything like us. No one. But what would you say to a founder who claims that our amazing product will sell itself? Because the reason I got to 149 kilos I think, was because I was feeding off people who came with that line. Yeah. <laughs> that is probably the oldest uh, misconception in the book. When you think that you're so unique, the Bible says there's nothing new under the sun. And it's been true thousands of years ago. It's more than true today. Whatever it is you think that you developed that is unique, um, I can name you probably 20 competitors right now from all over the globe. Uh, the last six unique ideas I had were stolen by bastards like the Medici <laughs> 600 years ago. I mean, the cheek of them. You know, that is a huge misconception. So not knowing whom are you going to face and why. 
Another huge misconception that I deal with is we know how to sell, or at least we know the basics. Sales have small nuances that are critical per country, per industry. But what a lot of salespeople or founders don't put enough attention to is on the buying process of the other side. For example, if you're selling to a governmental company and they have a budget committee meeting only on April 1st, once a year, it doesn't matter how good you are at sales, that's when the decision is going to be made. So putting those in the pipeline, assuming that you with your talent and um, great abilities at convincing people would be able to close the deal in a week is a huge misconception. So you have purchasing committees, you have buying departments, or you need to understand what is the chain of command within the purchasing process. The end user has a boss. Do they have their own budget? Are they going to the parent company that might be on a different continent? For the budget. And if they do, are they even the right people to talk to? That will impact on your sales. Meaning, for example, you hire English-speaking salespeople to target the retailers in the US. But it turns out that the decisions are made in Germany in the headquarters. So you're with the wrong marketing material, with the wrong language of people. That I is a degrees in the wrong location. What fascinates me is this desire for founders to expand fast. And they seem to just make, have a, an idea and then stick with it rather than spend enough time in the planning and the preparation. And as a result, what they end up doing is creating very negative, unintended downstream consequences with things like metrics and compensation and incentives and who they hire and so on. So if you were speaking to a first-time founder who hasn't yet had the benefit of screwing up royally and having proper scar tissue and blood and guts and broken relationships and estranged children and having the, you know, their <laughs> business ripped from under them uh, by their investors and their ego getting in the way, um, what, would, what advice would you give to them? Let's start with humility and taking advice and then build from there. So humility and taking advice is crucial. I'm a big believer in a systematic approach to everything, specifically to my own profession, which is sales and business development. It's a system. You need to know what are you going to do, how are you going to do it, and why. If you are a software developer and you have an engineering degree and you spend 10, 20 years doing that, I learned how to code in high school. I know a little bit of Turbo Pascal. I will never call myself or assume to be a software developer. I will never come to them and say, listen, open up your code. Let me have a look at all the lines that you wrote, the 6 million lines of code. I'll tell you where you wrote it wrong. But it does work the other way around. That guy that wrote the code will come to me or you or to their VP sales and say, listen, you're doing it wrong. Here's an idea. Here's how I want things to be done. So lack of humility, lack of understanding that sales and business development are a profession and you need to know what you're doing is, that's what sets you to failure at even before step one. Step two will lead you 
with that same attitude with your product. You have developed a product or you're at some phases of development and you're going to assume that you will impose that on the market. The market doesn't need that. They don't want your product. They want some, some of it. They want something completely else in addition to that. But you, in your stubbornness, will say, no, let me educate the market. I know best. So I'm assuming those are the, the initial sets of failure. My old pal, sadly, the, the deceased now, Jerry Lemberg, he uh, used to describe many entrepreneurs as people who created elegant solutions to problems that don't exist. And I'm minded of the cucumber cover. Sorry, Rob. And the wonderful, it's a wonderful idea. You put a, uh, this plastic lid on top of a cucumber and it doesn't go shrivelly. But there's a really simple solution, which is chuck the end off and you don't need to spend $6 on a piece of plastic. They'll ruin the environment. So what I see time and time again is companies, especially US companies and quite often Israeli companies and UK companies that have next to no cultural awareness. And so they have a central enablement or a central sales operations function and that's based in the home office. And then they have an international operation. Okay, let's explain what goes wrong and why that is a massively costly mistake, not localizing and giving autonomy to the local leaders. And hire- I, speak, I speak Russian. I was born in the Soviet Union. I understand the culture. I flew to Eastern Europe frequently. I had an office in Russia and Ukraine, both of those. I was closing multi-million dollars deals there on behalf of my customers. I speak English. My wife is from the States. I spend a lot of time in the States. I fly to the States. I understand the culture. I close deals there. I also speak Chinese, okay? I I have a degree, a BA from a university just so I'll get some kind of an understanding of how the culture works. I fly there and I close deals. I do not speak Italian. Every time I fly to Italy, I have a local sales director that takes me to meetings And he is completely autonomous. He has KPIs. He is expected to bring in the money. But he is completely autonomous simply because I have the humility to say I don't understand the culture. I don't get the nuances. I don't know what they mean when they say something. That's crucial. Same goes for Japan or Korea or India or France. It doesn't matter. So once you've done enough business globally, you understand that you are very narrow-minded. doesn't matter how multicultural you think you are, <laughs> but, but you're not. You need to have local people or at least somebody with a decent university degree that understands what is it that he's doing. It's always a teamwork. The Israelis know that they are a small country in Israel. They're kind of rude, and that's the chutzpah attitude works in specific countries. It does not work and kill deals in many others. Same goes for Americans. I stole deals from major American corporations like Texas Instruments in Eastern Europe or in Asia for this exact attitude because they sent the wrong people to negotiate the deal without even understanding what the deal was about. One of the things that frustrates me is the sort of tyranny of the playbook, the sort of dogma of methodology. 
when we've got this centralized, uh, there's a tendency to think, well, we're going to use um, Zoom Info and everyone's going to use Zoom, Zoom Info all over the world. When there are different data sets that are better for local markets, the technology stacks that people use will vary according to how they've been brought up, the sort of sales uh, culture, and the playbooks need to be frameworks. They don't need to be these restricted, prescriptive ways of selling. Because just like you said, if you don't align with the buyer and their process, no amount of you wanting them to be at that point in your sales process is going to make any difference. They'll Absolutely. just boil your head. Yep, so playbooks, scripts, or instructions I can see the use of that. You know, we, we both understand why they need it and we both wrote enough of those, implemented enough of those to, to see the need. But I think they should be very limited to either a specific industry and or country and to be a general framework for reference. Yeah. And not it's to be used. Yes, yes. And not to be, you know, uh, like there's this brilliant example. Let's take SDRs, for example. What is the most commonly used opener for a cold call? The one that was popularized by Sandler people, Benjamin Danahy, and I'm assuming this yourself. This is a cold call. Do you want to hang up? Hello, this is a cold call. Do you want to hang up or give me 30 seconds? Okay. So I took 600 salespeople in the United States, Germany, Russia, and the UK, and I let them have it for a week. So the metrics, the results are mind-blowing. For example, it worked like a charm in the UK. It did all right, all right-ish in the United States, and it failed miserably in Germany and Russia. Then I switched. I switched, and now all of my openers are a one-liner. The second the guy picks up, you say, hello, I am selling GPS trackers. I am selling accounting software. Interested? Okay. Wonders all over Eastern Europe, Central Europe, uh, the EU skyrocketed. Okay. In the United States, it worked a bit less, but still significantly better than that magic cold call open. Mm -hmm. The reason for that is once something was unique and used rarely, it kind of worked for some. The second it got abused, and now everybody are using it, and it's part of everyone's sales book, you must say this phrase, then every single cold call, and decision makers get dozens of those, starts the same way. Absolutely. You, you differentiate in how you sell, not what you sell. And this is where, again, the tyranny of the methodology is a problem for me. Because what I've realized over the years is that when I taught people technique, they might use it. And the danger is then more often than not using it inappropriately. And because they don't understand how it comes about through context. And I think this is one of the things that founders really don't get. And in fairness, 98% of salespeople don't get that you have to sell to the individual brain within the context in which it has to operate. And if you don't understand that fundamental reality, you're just going to beat, spend yourself beating your head against the wall. So how Absolutely. do they get to understand that? So I guess my, the, the way I approach it, I, I know that sales trainers trying to 
impose and enforce training on salespeople. I've rarely met a team where it worked. If you take 20 salespeople, you train them. A month later, they revert back to their habits. So what are you going to do? You can either keep an in-house trainer that keeps pounding them, and then you enforce something that is not natural to them, or do something else. I go for the something else. I say, listen, the only way for you to sell is if they have a need and if they like you. If they have the money, the need, you're in the right time, and they like you. Willing and nice. To understand that, all you need to do is have a decent conversation. Don't be a salesman. You're not selling. You're having a conversation. The purpose of the conversation is to understand if you can bring some kind of a value, if they need what you have, if there's a desperate need, or if there is money to buy what you have, and to be a decent human being. Basically, have a conversation. Pay attention to that last bit, people. Be a decent human being. That's the first rule of life and selling and management and marriage and parenting. Be a decent human being. Don't be an arsehole. Now, that is a hard one in junior levels, especially. So not just junior. Let me, let, let's stay on this for a sec. The culture where you enforce cutthroat mentality, meaning there's 10 people and only the top five will survive and I'll suck the other five. For that, you need to make at least 300 dials, enforce your product, make at least 10 people a day buy it or else you're at the door and then you get an aggressive commission, that culture will make a kind of a predator type of salesperson that will burn the brand eventually. And our day is much faster than previously because of the information. But that asshole is going to grow through the ranks and at some point will become either a VP or maybe even, heaven forbid, a CEO. And that will be the end of the company because nobody wants to be... It's one thing if you're selling a $1,000 deal you trick, con, or force somebody to buy it, they hate you. But once you do it on a much larger scale, then you build yourself a reputation. And that's going to be the end of it. Well, there was a very large software company I was coaching someone in, and uh, he was in the enablement function. And he was tearing his hair out because a number of the people he was coaching were losing deals because the customers were saying to them at the final hurdle, you know, we just don't trust your company. I mean, these were $3 million deals plus. I, listen, I, I can, I have an endless amount of stories starting from, let's, let's take an example. I went uh, to visit uh, customers in Romania on behalf of a company that their brand reputation is going down the hill. So I call something similar to an office depot and I say, I'm from this company. They say, Great, we really would like to meet you. Come over. I come over and imagine an office depot. They have uh, office chairs, tables, pens, pencils. And outside, they have two containers of garden sheds, plastic garden sheds. Yep. And they say, one of your salespeople tricked and conned and pushed us into buying this garbage that we will never sell. Now it sits in the parking lot. What do you want to do about it? So when I went back to the company and said, why would you sell garden sheds to an office depot? They were laughing and saying, isn't that great? The commission check paid for my family's vacation. Wow. All right. This is a symptom of short-term thinking and entitlement. 
two of the worst characteristics that I'm seeing uh, very prevalent in young companies that are led by people who've come through sales. And one of the frustrations I see time and time again is founders who are in too much of a hurry and they lack the maturity to slow down. What would you say to them? You know, you cannot educate people. You can you can kind of bring the education, you can bring the horse, but you can make the horse drink. So if you put salt in the oats, you can. Or if you bring a torch to the horse's arse and you light it up. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. You just gotta put enough salt in so they make them thirsty. You know, if needed, I bet we can do. But what I'm saying is those clowns will have to get burned, and that's how they'll learn. Hopefully, hopefully, because, you know, uh, the world is small. And once you're a CEO that burned a, a company to the ground, uh, you might be able to become a CEO again by blaming the investors, the market, the war, the whatever. <laughs> or you could take responsibility and grow up. That would be it. Yeah, taking the responsibility. My English, I'm, I'm pretty fluent, but I'm, I'm not familiar with that term. <laughs> taking the responsibility? <laughs> I'm sure there's a saying in Hebrew about it. I, I listen to recordings of VPs and of CEOs besides the SDRs. And then I, we sit in the room and I'm like, why do you think that business deal went bad? Like, well, because of the economic climate. I'm like, can we play the recording so everybody will hear that? Five minutes later, I'm like, do you see what happened there? And like, no, I don't. It's the economic climate or the war or the regulation or the prices that went up for raw materials. So look in the mirror, 99% of the time, if a customer objects, gets it wrong, doesn't understand, it's your fault. If uh, people are not working out in your team and you hired them, it's your fault. Again, we, we've got to get over ourselves. I mean, let's start with this um, absolute demon. What are some of the most toxic sales incentives and metrics that damage performance that seem to be prevalent almost everywhere? Wow. That's a whole different topic. Metrics. Imagine you own a company. Your, the purpose of your company is not to manufacture or to develop. The purpose of your company is to make money for you, for the investors, for the employees, whatever, to make money. How do you make money? By selling. Who's making the sales? The salespeople. So what should you measure? Sales, how much money they bring in. But before they bring in the money, there's additional steps that need to be taken. What are the crucial steps to bring in money? Let's say meetings. How many meetings did you have? That's a good metrics to measure. I know that out of every three meetings, I'm closing one, and that's good enough. So I need to be having three meetings a day. If I need to be having two closed deals, I need to be having six meetings a day. How do I get to those meetings? Probably by having either Zoom or phone conversations with how many people? 10 out of every 10 that I talk to, I end up meeting physically two people. Is it more? So the metrics that need to be measured are money, conversations and meetings with relevant decision makers. What should never be measured, because it's absolutely irrelevant, is the amount of emails that you sent, the amount of phone calls that you made, 
the amount of secretaries you spoke to or the amount of Valentine letters that you sent to those secretaries to try and bribe them to give the decision makers cell phone. Unfortunately, as we both know, those are exactly the metrics that are measured. Every time an SDR comes into a job interview, he's asked, how many phone calls can you make a day? How many emails? How many LinkedIn messages can you send? None of that matters. What matters is the conversion of the activity into cash. What is the conversion? That's up to you. And we've got to look for the leading indicators. So we've got to focus on effective conversations with customers who are in our ideal customer profile, not effective conversations with people outside of our ideal customer profile. They don't count. And I would typically recommend aiming to have five of those a day. If you don't hit it. Five conversations? Yeah, five meaningful conversations with people who are on your list. If you're an AE. I myself, I myself, I worked with, worked with uh, two months ago, I worked with this company. They do an IoT device in the States. So there was an SDR and the SDR had an auto dialer and he would dial a thousand dials a day, over a thousand dials, out of which you would have, uh, let's say, 20, 30 irrelevant conversations and about one relevant. I said, okay, let, I'm not going to tell you what to do. I'm going to show you how I'm going to do it. Okay. I went to the corporate website of the target market company, picked up the phone, called and said, hello. I'm selling this product. Who's in your company in charge of that? They gave me a name and a cell phone. In one hour, one hour, I had five conversations. In one hour. And that, that's realistically what you want to do. In, within that business, you want to have multiple conversations instead Absolutely. of just trying to pitch somebody but, who has no by the way, By the way, let's talk about the following. This brings us to the next topic. Let's talk about tech stack. Technology. Right? Technology sets you to failure often. How many pieces of software does a salesperson have nowadays? How many? I'm seeing average around 17 is quite common, up to 45. To how many data banks, databases is the company subscribed? Seamless, Zoom info. Typically, the hangover effect is around two to two and a half hours a day lost trying to navigate your own tech stack. Now, when you reverse that by creating a central point of reference that has all of your resources and all of that tech is feeding into it, you can recover two to two and a half hours a day where people can spend it on high value activity. Like for example, getting time in front of the customer. Another metric that is absolutely almost never measured Daily meaningful conversations, number of referrals generated is another really important metric. And um, first to second meeting conversion is another crucial metric because on average, seven out of eight first meetings do not convert to second. Now, you know how expensive it is in terms of time, money, and resource to get one meeting because of the number of damn dials you've got to make or the number of emails you've got to inflict on people. Well, fix that metric and go from one to two, and you've doubled the strength of your pipeline. Heaven forbid you to get 70 or 80% to actually the The amount of money it costs you to be in front of the customer varies. For example, if all you did was uh, send in 10,000 spam emails and one 
booked a Zoom meeting and you're in front of a customer on Zoom, that's one thing. If you have a team of five people that are making calls, booking you international flights to meetings abroad, and then you have to fly, book a hotel, drive, get a car, be in a meeting, then fly back, the cost of that is going to be significantly higher. Well, on top of that, you've got their, what the opportunity cost is, that if this doesn't work out. And so for a person on a million bucks target, that's four grand a day. That's expensive. You know, every time they set foot out of the office, you need to calculate what it costs. You don't want salespeople going on willy-nilly trips, but you do want them going on trips with prospective future customers who are in your medium-term pipeline, and you want them nurturing that pipeline as well. Exactly. Another big pain of the tech stack, we both know that salespeople or founders, doesn't matter what level you're at, you're at the VP level, the CEO, founder, or the NNSDR. People are afraid of sales. There's really few people in the world that enjoy sales, love sales, and want to be doing sales. The vast majority do not want to be doing it. When you smack them with a huge tech stack saying, here's a bunch of tools, why don't you do the research of your potential prospect? Uh, look into the data that we have available on him. Maybe warm him up with an email. You're setting that salesperson to failure. They're going to procrastinate and they're not going to do their job. If on average, and I looked into the, the, the averages, but it takes on in, in big tech sales, especially project-based sales or B2G sales, it takes over an hour of the research time per lead. I say, why don't you just pick up the phone, call the guy, and ask if he's interested in what you have to offer. How about that? That'll take you 40 seconds. Right, but you can start very neatly with a really powerful hypothesis once you've done your initial conversations around the organization as well. Because if you're going to have a conversation with the CFO or the CEO or the CRO, you better be damn sure that you're hitting the mark. Well, absolutely. Yeah, no, I'm I'm assuming that you did your research. I'm assuming that you have a general idea of the country, industry, company size and persona you're targeting. And when you have the why is it that you're targeting? That's a very big assumption. So I'm very pleased that we reiterated it. So uh-huh. go and do your fucking research, okay? Um, it's You have an obligation. Buyers deserve the best prepared, the most well-practiced, and the most thought-provoking salespeople. They do not want an order taker. They don't want a suit that happens to spout what they can look up on the internet. What they want is someone who's going to help them advance their understanding of their problem and is going to be able to help them solve at least part of it and is on their side. Turn up, be a decent human being. Don't be an asshole. Don't be self-serving. And you have to have your customers back, even if it means standing up to your own management. Now, this is a difficult dilemma. So what advice would you give to the rep who is dealing with a management that is putting them under pressure to pressurize the customer to buy before they are ready and before the company is actually in a position to know for sure that they are qualified to sell to them. A quick story that will explain and give you the answer to that. Thank you. A salesperson has assets, his own assets. A, he has his own brand. Online, especially our days, it's crucial. Whomever you are, 
people will Google you. If you're a salesperson right now for Coca-Cola or Mars, people will Google you to see who you are. You have your LinkedIn profile. Once you become a bit more senior, you have your own customers that you sold to something. You will switch careers many, many, many times. What's the average for a salesperson in a company? About a year, right? Because if you start and you want a 10, 20% raise next year, your company is not going to give it to you. The next door company will absolutely give it to you. If you'll show up with a list of customers, they will grab you and pay you significantly more. I've seen companies going bankrupt for firing salespeople, and those salespeople left with the entire customer base. That customer bought, not because of the brand. There's a, there's a lot of brands there. He didn't buy because you have something unique or special. He bought it because the salesperson did a decent job of understanding the needs, the pains, and provided a solution. If that trusted salesperson will call him back in two years, saying, John, do you still have that problem or you have a similar problem? Because right now I work with a different brand and from what I know about you, I think we'd be able to help you, then the first brand is going to lose a customer. Yep. Especially if it's a distribution channel. <laughs> Leaving a distributor with hundreds of customers that's managed by a sales director or a salesperson is going to take the company under. My <laughs> advice to a salesperson is be a decent human being. It will pay not only in the long run, it will pay in the very short run. You'll close deals, higher deals. It'll help you with your career. Again, I cannot stress enough. You are known by the promises you keep, not the ones you make. So absolutely. be absolutely impeccable with your word. Don't make assumptions. Don't judge. Don't complain and whine. Look at the constraints as a creative catalyst. Know that the economy is the same for everyone in your market. There are people who are crushing it because they are doing the right thing by the customer. They are developing the right habits. They have the right values and beliefs, and they're focused on the right things, and they know how to stay in their swim lane. They also know how to cooperate. And Tal just touched on it there. The channel, distribution, many organizations, when they're starting out, they want to go direct. They have this uh, illusion that they have some element of control over their sales. I mean, even when you have your own salespeople, you don't have control. It's just an illusion. And the CRM, I saw an article that Chris Orlob posted, and he was uh, bemoaning the uh, lack of quality of discovery, saying that it was um, a process, not an event. And I asked the question, well, if the CRM is set up as an audit function and it's set up as a measurable stage, surely that's going to drive that behavior. And I see this time and time and time and time again. How do we get past this, especially when we're trying to deal with distribution? Because we have no control. These distributors, uh, resellers, uh, are in business for their reasons. They don't give a damn about you, your company, your aspirations, your desire to IPO, trade sale, or be bought by PE. And they don't care about your quota. How do we make sure that these technical founders recognize the real power of distribution and treat it well right from the start? 
That's a hard one. Yeah. That's a hard one. A decent founder or CEO of a, of a start company, they will get themselves, hopefully, and some kind of a function in-house, like a business consultant or a VP sales. That professional will know what he's doing. If not, and the, the entire concept of distribution is foreign because any founder believes that their product is the bomb and everybody will buy it directly in crazy quantities. Hopefully, sometime down the road before the cash runs out, they'll figure out how wrong they are and then they'll look into additional channels. The distributor, a decent distributor, when he comes, depends how polite he is and from what country he is. The polite ones, you'll never be able to work with because they'll come and they'll listen to you and you'll say, my product is the bomb, trust me. You'll make a lot of money. He'll nod and say, okay, thank you. Goodbye. And you'll never hear back from him. But they'll put put your logo on their website. No, no, no. They're not even going to do that. They don't want to like, you know, burn their own brand with your clownish logo. What what do they need that for? (laughs) Okay, fair enough. The decent ones, if you'll come and you'll, you'll know what is it that they want from you. Like, what does the distributor want? The distributor wants to make money. So if you say, listen, you can buy my product for a dollar, sell it for five, and I'll have a streamlined supply chain and have a tech support and customer support. It's on me, you just do the reselling. Sounds like a good deal. So if you know what to offer them, they'll talk to you. The problem starts is that you don't know what to offer them. You don't even understand that they're in it for the money. And you're probably going to say, listen, why would you sell it for $5? I'm selling it to you for a dollar. So if you're selling it for five, I want $4 out of the five. A decent distributor, they'll talk to you. So listen, don't get into my pockets. You can't tell me what to do and how much to sell it for. The MSRP, you know? So I, I don't know. Distribution is tricky. And unless you have a dedicated function and decent understanding of business, you won't be able to bring in the good ones and the bad ones won't do much. Well, I, I think one of the best lessons that I teach my clients when they're looking at uh, building their channel is look at what that partner already sells a lot of. And is there a way that you can help them sell more of it? Because that's really easy. Because they'll drag you in kicking and screaming whether you want to be there or not. If you can 2x or 5x their sales of their core products, because you're adjacent and you're something that might be sold before or sold after in order to generate additional opportunity for them. And you've got to think of your distribution as having the value of 100 customers and treat that research like it's gold. I mean, this is prime um, opportunity. If you get the right distribution, I've worked with uh, companies that have grown a thousand or four thousand percent over a two-year period just by going international. You can't Absolutely. do that in your domestic market. No, no, I'm not even talking about domestic market. Domestic markets is uh, uh, is like limiting yourself, saying I'm going to sell only to people aged 25 to 27. But <laughs> yeah. it doesn't work. Should we talk about the different functions and companies? Yeah, that would be really helpful because I I, I think most um, founders will hire somebody from senior, like a VP of sales or a CRO, when really what they want is a jobbing salesperson. And it's important to understand what these different roles do All right. understand who you should be so hiring. So let's, let's talk from the top to bottom. Please. 
At the top, you have the management, which is usually the CEO or the founder. Then you need a guy whose job it is, everything that is money. That should be VP sales, and sometimes they're called VP global sales or VP sales and business development. Parallel to that sales is an activity in which a person meets another person and there's a money transaction for services or products. That is sales. Sales are often confused with marketing. Marketing is a department usually run by VP marketing or marketing manager or director or something that now has a new title, CRO, chief revenue officer, that is meaningless and means different things in different countries. Marketing is campaigns, ads, brand awareness, the activity that is meant to generate a stream of inbound leads, inbound interest. People heard about you, they're contacting you to hear about more, but to hear more about you. And that's where sales kick in. Marketing as an activity is important, especially if you're in a selling to customers, P2C activity. Less important if you're in B2B and non-important at all if you're in B2G or project-based. Meaning, if all I need is 10 customers a year, I'll get somebody to call 100 companies, fly out to 50 companies, negotiate with 30 companies, and close 10 deals. But if I need 50 deals a day, then the system is different. So you build your sales and marketing around your target audience, around your product, and about and around the desired outcome. That's basically it. Sales teams at the bottom, you have SDRs, sales development representatives. Those are usually the guys that call a list of people and pitching and negotiate. I'm a big believer in a full sale, in a full cycle salesperson, meaning one guy finds his own potential customers, calls them, goes to them, negotiate the deal, and closes. Those are usually run by either a team leader or a regional manager. Those are usually run by a director, and above them, you have the VP. That's the typical standard-ish product. Okay, well, what, what, what baffles me is where the logic comes of having the least experienced people trying to speak to the most experienced and hard-nosed people in the business in order to set up a meeting. Surely uh, the SDR function and the, that top-of-funnel function needs to be uh, led by and delivered by someone, people senior. So the logic is, once again, you know, we have the herd mentality. You look around you and you do what everybody else are doing. That's what everybody else are doing. I'll give you an example. 23 years ago, my job was to close deals with large pharma, Pfizer, AstraZeneca, Abbott, okay? The company that hired me were only PhDs in chemistry, medicinal chemistry, biology, they were all pharmaceuticals. They brought me over and they trained me for a day every week for the next three years. That's how long I was trained. Only after four or five months of proper training. And at that point, I had years of experience. I was allowed to look for leads. They said, here's what we're looking for. Here's how it's done. My first flight out to a meeting, I was accompanied by two people. I was not allowed to speak. They said, listen, do not open your mouth. Just listen how <laughs> everybody else are doing it. You're going to torpedo the deal. 
the concept is in the funnel, meaning you assume that to close one deal, you need to speak to five, and you need to email 10, and you need to find 20. There's a funnel, a sales funnel, or marketing funnel. The concept is, mis especially in B2B, it, it should not work like that. Meaning if you narrow down your target audience, and you know exactly what is their point, what is their pain point, you know what bothers them, you know how you plug in, what do you solve and why, whom are you dealing and competing against, your conversion rates are significantly higher. It's not going to be a sales funnel, it's going to be a sales pipeline. You talk to 10 people, you sell to eight. You don't talk to 10 people and sell to one, or talk to 100 and sell to one. There's no funnel, it's a pipeline. So this concept is like the chicken and the egg because you bring juniors that don't know what they're doing and they don't want to be doing that. Usually an SDR is somebody who fell into this job. He does not want to be doing it. You're enforcing habits on them. You're enforcing behaviors on them. Tell them, here's what you should be doing. He hates his job. Well, no kidding. You're going to be talking to a thousand people before you sell one. Obviously. That's the problem. Okay. Tal, we're, we're coming to time. This has been extremely informative. Tell me this. What is it? What, what leadership qualities do founders need to admit they need the help of sales? And where do they need to reform their thinking and their beliefs? Number one, you need to understand that if you founded a company or if you're a part of the management of a company, it's not a one-man job. You obviously understand that somebody else will be doing the accounting and someone else will be the receptionist and someone else will be preparing your food. You're going to go out and buy lunch. The same goes for everything. You need to have functions within the company, more senior, less senior, either in the company or outsourcing. So if you founded a new VP CTO, you're the chief technological officer. Somebody needs to be in charge of the manufacturing process. Somebody needs to be in charge of the development, the developers. And then you buy your food from outside. You don't have a function. You don't have a cook in the company that cook your meals. You go outside. Unless you're in tech. You might have an accounting and you might outsource your accounting. Same goes for every other function. You need to realize you cannot have all of them in-house. And you cannot do all of them by yourself. Other people need to be doing that. Well, th that then raises another very interesting question because I'm convinced that sales is going to go through quite a significant uh, cull over the next couple of years because genuinely a lot of sales functions are already redundant. The last couple of years has shown, I mean, um, that the technology has basically been sold. In, uh, from one tech company to another, mostly, and the value of that has plummeted and real businesses are looking around thinking, okay, well, we'll wait and see. Now, we're facing a recession. So I'm really curious about your thoughts in terms of how companies need to rethink their approach to sales so that they have a more long-term view and they're not panicking in recession because the panic is what will kill them. And what advice would you give them in terms of how they need to change from the good times that, frankly, have been relatively easy the last uh, you know, few years, with plenty of free money and you know, lots of opportunity in people buying, to a shift where people are now uncertain and afraid. 
Okay, my number one advice in that is we're moving, we're moving from times where we could have whatever was nice to have. We're moving to times where you must have what you must have. Instead of nice have, go to must have. In other words, if you had a cook within your company and you had a kitchenette and you're cooking your own foods, now go to Subway or Pizza Hut. Start outsourcing that. What is not a nice to have is your salespeople. Sure, a lot of them need to be called out, but we probably, you, you know companies that once there's you know, bad financial times, they just terminated the entire marketing department. They terminated all of their sales. They said, we're going to go back to the drawing board. We'll redevelop a product. Pipelines are dead. Connections are dead. No money coming. Nothing happens. The company goes under. Invest in your salespeople. Invest in good salespeople. Invest in your upper management. Get rid of the nice to have and diverse your risk. If you, heaven forbid, are a one-country company, meaning you're selling right now only to the United States or in the UK, stop doing that. Look around you. The world is vast. The upcoming depression is going to come in a wave. That wave is going to hit some parts of the world first. Be in the other parts of the world. Like there's a depression that uh, the market goes down in the United States, be in Germany. You know that Germany is next, be in China. You know that China is going to be next. Move to Ukraine, go to Poland, Romania. There's enough countries out there for everybody to literally be escaping that huge wave that is coming. And the global recession is a conceit because by and large, what's bad for one is often very good for others. There will be winners. There are always winners in recessions. And absolutely, absolutely. I mean, absolutely. The, the, isn't it true that the best salespeople will sell whatever the economic conditions? Yes, absolutely. Right. If so they learn have... to be a good, learn to be one of them. Sorry, I didn't interrupt. Over no, you. no, 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 no. I'm saying all it takes is just the capacity to, to understand the, the rules of the game. The world is vast, it's a zero-sum game. You know, E is MC square, meaning that. The money was going to shift countries and the markets are going to just shift. Industry is going to be shifting, but they're still there, just in a different part of the world. Go and, get it. And how is the recession or the depression going to reveal flaws in sales fundamentals? Where are you going to see that early so that they can maybe get ahead of it? If you look, from the end, like we described, you know, the, the typical sales process, and you know that the end result is money in the bank. You know who brought in the money. But there's a bunch of people that are unneeded. There's a lot of activity that is happening that is unneeded. There's a lot of tech that you're paying for that is unneeded. Get rid of all of that useless fat. Focus on the lean and mean, and that will bring you much higher results with fewer people. Fantastic. Tal, you've got a golden ticket and you can go back and speak to your 23-year-old idiot self that knew everything, thought he was invincible. What advice would you give him that at that stage he'd have probably have ignored but would have benefited from greatly? Don't be too cocky. That'll be it. That, that sounds like that has a story or two attached. Do you want to hear the story? Yeah, of course I do. I <laughs> I start working for a company. I signed a contract with a company on, on a, a Thursday. I 
drove out of them, bought myself a nice black suit. And on Sunday, I flew out to world's largest expo called Spoga Gaffa for retail in Germany. And I'm standing at the manufacturer booth that hired me. And we, all the sales guys, are wearing black suits, white shirts, ties. Dude, we look $100, million. And suddenly I see two guys that look like clowns, like buffoons from a TV show. Everybody in suits, and those two are wearing Hawaiian shirts, shorts, and flip-flops. So they come to me, and this is my first day at, at, at this job. And I am the sales director, European Union. So they come to me, and they're like, so what do you guys sell? And I'm like thinking to myself, get it. I don't have the time for you clowns. Get, get lost. But this is what we sell. Like, how much is it? And what's the shipping time? And I'm like, I don't have the time for it. Then I'm like, okay, I, I remembered my training. I'm like, okay, why don't I ask somebody? I'm like, where are you guys from? So they say a name of a company. And I'm like, what is that? They're like, it's Europe's largest online retailer. I'm like, well, what do you mean? What do you do there? Are you the purchasing agent? They're like, oh, we're the co-founders. We're the owners of the company. I'm like, how much was your turnover? Like, well, last year we did 90 million euros. I'm like, okay. The, the richest man in Asia, it works out of a tin shack in Singapore Harbor. And I'm sure he must be dead now because last I heard he was 93. And he continued to work out of there for about 70 years. So don't judge a book by its cover. So now when I train salespeople to fly out to meetings or to fly out to trade shows, I tell them the guys in the suits are working for the guys in flip-flops. Go for the guys in flip-flops. Absolutely. And do your research on social because those guys in flip-flops probably have a life which is public and it's out there. How can people get hold of you? They can either find me on LinkedIn, Tal Paperen, Go to the website, www.k, like King, S, like Solomon, W, like Wisdom, dot solutions, KSW solutions. Everything's right there. Dot com? Not dot com. That's the dot solutions. The company is dot, dot solutions. Sorry. Solutions. That's the KSW dot solutions. I'm an old man. I'm partially deaf. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a young man and I'm partially deaf. Um, Okay, and so what would you recommend people read, watch, or listen to? If you were to pick uh, one or one to three really good bits of content. Absolutely not. Do not read one or five or nothing like that. There's a, a ton of influencers and people online. You need to, in order to build yourself your own system that works or understand this world, you need to listen to all of them. All of them. Everybody are controversial. You know, so there's Benjamin Danahy that I'm a big fan of. He's a master in cold calls. Listen to him. Daniel Disney will talk to you about social selling. But those two are different things. So that's one. Two. Grant Cardone is a personality by his own. Listen to what he has to say. The guy is a multi-billionaire. Don't agree with him, but at least know what he has to say. Gary V, marketing. Have 50% haters guts, but listen to him. The guy knows a bunch of things. And this advice advice is really key. You need range because range allows you to have perspective and it allows you to rub off the rough edges of your bias and your history. The second thing is make sure you go and listen to and speak to people who disagree with you. 
because it's in those intersectional moments that you will synthesize better outcomes and better solutions. Those have been the best lessons that I've learned in the last couple of years, and I wish I'd learned them younger. So a famous Jewish proverb, it's a verse in one of the holy Jewish books, say, who can be called wise? He who learns from any person. And the emphasis is on the any, meaning if you learn just from the smart, it doesn't get you that far. You need to be learning from every person. I'm a big fan of that proverb. Absolutely. Okay, well, we'll take that advice up. Excellent. So, Pell Paparin, thank you very much. Um, My pleasure, Marcus. Excellent. So if you've enjoyed this episode, then please do like, comment, share, and subscribe. And as this episode comes to an end, I hope you've gained some valuable insights into sales and running a sales operation. Now it's time to reflect on your ultimate goal by asking yourself, what do I want my career in sales or my business to give me in life? And how can I make that my reality? If you're committed to achieving your dreams, then I'm offering you a 45-minute paid coaching session, £250. It's just a taster, no risk, where you will come out with a strategic plan for your success and take charge of your future. So if you want that, book a session by clicking the link in the blurb. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.